You're listening to the Transforming Society podcast. I'm Richard Kemp, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with Ed Atkins, Senior Lecturer in the School of Geographical Sciences at the University of Bristol. Ed's new book, A Just Energy Transition, Getting Decarbonisation Right in a Time of Crisis, published by Bristol University Press, looks at the juxtaposition between the need for rapid global decarbonisation and the politics that surround that change. Renewable energies, such as solar, wind and hydroelectric, have been part of the conversation for decades, though we still rely heavily on fossil fuels. Now we've reached the point of no return, where it is essential that we overhaul our entire energy system. Still, there are many communities that will get left behind in that transition, even suffer its consequences, while others will greatly benefit. Ed argues that, in order to create a just energy transition, we must provide people, all people, with a new future that is better than the present. Ed Atkins, welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, I'm also excited because this is the first time that we're, we're, we're recording with a guest in the University of Bristol. Uh, I'm so pleased that, um, that, that we can be here together since um, all the guests that we've had so far or that we normally have uh, are outside of Bristol and we normally, so we normally record over video call. But since, since you, Ed, work at, work at Bristol Uni, uh, we wanted to do something together face to face. And um, Amy Wilson, in distance learning content, set up this wonderful studio for everyone to use, and I feel quite privileged to be one of the first people to use it. And if anyone in the university is listening and you want to record some audio or video, um, I advise you give uh, you drop Amy a line. So yeah, and so thanks so much again for coming today, uh, Ed. No, it's it's good to be here. I'm excited to to talk more about this book. It's been a, a good few years in the making, and mm. something I'm really I, I really care about and, and that care has kind of grown throughout the process mm. so it's um, going to be good to, to talk through and hear your questions absolutely I'm excited so actually I want to yeah get right in so in your book you explain how our current energy model is not fit for purpose investor-owned energy providers make astronomical profits even the national grid is uh, uh, is investor-owned which I had I had no idea about that I was so shocked while the poorest are forced to decide whether to turn their power on or save it for another day in 2022 to 2024 alone, UK energy firms are predicted to make 170 billion in excess profits That's and 170 billion pounds. How have we got to this stage? Well, the energy system is, is, is complex. It's formed of numerous companies and entities from generation to transmission, distribution, supply. Um, but as you say, one thing is quite simple about the sector in the UK and that it is almost entirely privately owned. Mm. Now, that's part of a kind of a broader political project, which goes back generations. Um, but it's also due to kind of how the system is structured today and kind of how we rely upon it in, in numerous ways. It's very similar to the water sector, mm. um, which we see in the news a lot. And it's no surprise that we're seeing both the water sector and the energy sector kind of hitting the news on a regular basis um, over the past few years. Um, in 1990, all of the UK's kind of regional electricity boards, which are kind of much more regional and, and public facing, were privatised. Okay, and slowly but surely, they became part of the model that we see today. Mm -hmm. And you're right, the national grid is one of the biggest kind of energy distribution companies in the, in the country. It's what most of us rely upon for energy to be transmitted and supplied to our homes. Right. Um, but it's, it's owned by primarily kind of private shareholders. So the mm. top 10 shareholders of our national grid, the UK's national grid, include BlackRock, which is a global asset management firm, one of the biggest global asset management firms in the world. But it also includes um, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. And this is one of these key things which is worth noting about our energy sector, mm. is that it's not entirely privately owned. A lot right. of it 
uh, is owned by public companies, mm. just not public companies based in the UK and therefore accountable to UK residents. Right, so, so we do see a lot of our energy companies being owned by, say, French national energy companies, which are partly owned by the French government. So there is this kind of complexity at play here when for us it's privately owned. But internationally and globally, there are public entities running our energy supply and using it to extract profits to serve people in different countries and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's so much. Uh, yeah, it's so, so well. You know, it goes so much deeper than I than I realized. Well, and, and wider. And that, and I guess in many ways that's the point of it. And mm-hmm. and this is why you know I say a, that the, my care for this topic kind of came out throughout this book. It was the 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 contract for this book was originally signed in maybe 2019, mm-hmm. and a lot has changed since so then. Much. Yeah. And you know, working on energy now is that it is a hot topic, but also a very difficult and political topic. Right. And part of the reason why energy prices have become such a huge issue at this point is that it is a top is um, from a sector which was quite opaque. Mm. It was quite hidden. We knew we could switch suppliers, but we didn't really know what was going on in the sector as a whole. Right. So in the past two years, we have suddenly seen this greater awareness of the sector and its problems and its complexities. And we're seeing that as some social movements kind of pushing back against it today as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Uh, you say that we desperately need to decarbonize to, to move from fossil fuels to other renewable forms. Um, but you also say that even this is unjust. Google, Amazon, JP Morgan Chase, plus any other companies that can afford to, are investing heavily in renewable energy subsidies. Uh, oh, there are other examples from your book I picked out. Um, 1% of the population own half the land in England. Um, the royal family own many of the seabeds on which offshore wind farms are being built. Uh, another being um, in Mexico, police and hitmen enact violence against the indigenous population. In Sicily, mafia set fire to land to clear space for solar technology. Um, it does certainly appear that the local people are being left behind in this transition. What does their future look like and uh, what should be happening instead? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and there's, there's communities and, and people and, and, and countries living at the sharp end of this change mm. globally. And... A big part of that is yeah, you've just listed a series of kind of cases which are highlighted across the book, and all of these are symbolic of how we are asking those who dominated the old model to create the new one. Mm. So, of course, we're going to be seeing injustices created as that transition happens. Mm-hmm. Oil and gas and coal all had their embodied injustices associated with them and across their supply chains. Mm. And we're just seeing the same model being transferred over to renewables now. Now, the sharp end of change can affect all different types of people and communities. It can affect those who are living in places like the Lithium Triangle in Bolivia, Chile and Argentina, Mm -hmm. where they're seeing their water table lowered and polluted to extract lithium to make solar panels and and kind of batteries, rechargeable batteries. But it could be just as much in the, the communities in the old industrial towns of the UK, where we're seeing car manufacturers close down, moving their trade elsewhere, because there's not the industrial policy to support them in a transition to electric vehicles. Mm, mm. So in many ways, an energy transition has so much promise. But that promise is lost a lot of the time because those people that were asking to make that change Mm. are those who monopolised and enjoyed and benefited from the system before and therefore are resistant to a broader structural change Mm. which would support these communities and allow for more just uh, just, just outcomes. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. 
The uh, there was um, I'm remembering as well in your book you were talking quite a bit about the community of Lawrence Weston as well. Yeah. Um, that you have I think you have personal experience there too. Yeah. And the and the change that's occurred there. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Cool. So yeah. So Lawrence Weston for those who aren't in Bristol is a, is a suburb in the north of Bristol. It is. Um, generally seen as one which has been disadvantaged by previous patterns of change. So they've lost community centres and colleges in the past, um, and they're, they're kind of on the edge, on the periphery of the city. So in terms of kind of, you know, the, the figures, there'll be kind of more people on who are economically disadvantaged or on benefits, government benefit schemes in Lawrence Western than the average in Bristol. And there are less people who kind of have levels of education above GCSE and so on. So this is a community which is... Um, very much peripheralised um, by previous policy and previous patterns of change. Mm. Um, but as with lots of communities across the country, particularly those who have been peripheralised, they have an incredibly strong local community ethic and this keystone organisation called Ambition Lawrence Western, which has worked with um, Bristol Energy Network, which is a, a local kind of energy engineering um decentralised energy kind of organisation mm. um, and, and other groups including Bristol City Council and the regional government um, the West of England combined authority mm-hmm. to build a wind turbine um, on land nearby the community and the original plan was to have that wind turbine generate electricity for the community themselves so therefore to reduce the bills and so on. Mm. The national grid how it's set up is quite difficult to do that it, to build a a transmission point of that is, is, is highly kind of difficult in engineering terms but also very expensive mm-hmm. so the wind turbine which is now built um, is in operation and is selling electricity to the national grid mm-hmm. and is they are plowing that money back into the community so how they're going to spend it I don't know but mm-hmm. I've heard talk of you know local skills and training facilities reopening the college putting money into energy efficiency in the households there um, and it if every step in every step of that project, the community has been first. The community has defined and dictated what that project will look like. Mm. Now I'm under no illusions. We can't kind of do that in every single community across the country. We haven't got the time. But there is a space for communities like those in Lawrence Western. There is a space mm. for organisations like Ambition Lawrence Western and the hard work and the good work that they do, mm. um, because it's about taking a bit of um, authority. And showing a bit of kind of control over what an energy transition would look like in their local area in the neighbourhood as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's simultaneously global, national and local. And I think right now we're really forgetting that energy transitions happen somewhere. Right. The way uh, the way you that 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 terminology you use quite a lot through the book, the the energy periphery, that really struck yeah. me of just like it, it really spoke of um uh, kind of um, whether whether purposefully or accidentally or whatever, but forgotten communities. Um, yeah, we're going to shove something in here you know, in the fossil fuels his- yeah. historically, and, and now with renewables. Um, renewables seem so great, and then they are so great, but you but you still get these forgotten energy peripheries. Yeah, and that's a tension that kind of like you have to navigate with a book like this. Is mm. that I you know, I want to make it clear in the recording that I'm all for renewable energy. I I, course, I yeah. support it. I want mm. it everywhere. I want a, a solar panel on every rooftop possible. Mm. But I also want to ensure that that transition does not disproportionately impact communities and people who are already impacted by previous patterns of change. Mm. And they are they are overlapping. Right, it is right. there and and that causes a major issue. 
not just in terms of kind of geography of impacts and where we're seeing the impacts, but in kind of socioeconomic terms as well, in terms of kind of wealth distribution um, and the kind of like political participation and so on. Because we're seeing today this rising anti-net zero backlash. And this is coming from numerous quarters and it's not happening in the UK, it's happening in the US with Donald Trump, it's happening in, in Europe, it's happening in numerous different countries across, particularly the global north. Um, there needs to be a positive vision of what an energy transition is. Like mm -hmm. a solar panel is a good thing. It can transform people's lives. It can transform livelihoods. It can help communities. That wind turbine in Lawrence Western can be transformative. Mm -hmm. And we're replicating it can be transformative elsewhere. But we're missing that story. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the, I guess, the beginning of the book is that we need to have a new story of what an energy transition is. It's something which happens with people and for them rather than to us. Right, right. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking about uh, Lawrence Weston as well. Uh, I did want to bring that up because we are a Bristol publisher. Um, and also because we're a Bristol publisher, I was particularly interested to read about the, the now defunct Bristol Energy, uh, which was a community-centred renewable energy provider. Uh, what happened with Bristol Energy? What were they trying to achieve? And how could things be different if they had succeeded? It's a, it's a really good question. And, and one thing I've tried to do throughout this book is ground kind of what I'm talking about, which can be quite conceptual um, in, in local case studies. And, and Bristol's a really strong one, as you say. We're both in Bristol at the moment. I got mm. caught in the Bristol rain on my <laughs> way over here. I live just down the road from Lawrence Weston. Like, mm. it's these are important cases and also something very personal to me as well. So, you know, Bristol Energy is a really important example of a local authority. So in this case, the city council, a municipal mm. government, kind of trying to enter the energy market and create something new. And this kind of happened over a period of, of, of time um, with the company ultimately encountering difficulties in, in 2018 and therefore kind of going bust and, and being kind of broken up and sold in 2020. So mm -hmm. there's this process kind of over the past you know, five or six years around Bristol Energy. Now, Bristol Energy was owned by the city council and the company took on both commercial and residential customers for energy supply. Okay, So they were almost kind of an energy supply company. So they, they would take the energy from one place and set it on to its consumers. Mm. Um, it was advertised as a very locally branded Bristolian energy company, which looked after the climate and its communities. And the city's population was identified as, as, a, as a key customer base so it was very locally grounded it was owned by the city council it was targeting bristol residents and it had bristol as its brand so by 2019 it had 165,000 residential customers so this isn't necessarily small in the city of bristol this is quite sure. an important supplier by the yeah. end um now the company encountered difficulties and this is for various reasons. It lost some quite big supply contracts. Mm. Um, so for example, it was supplying Bristol City Council with energy and then Bristol City Council due to procurement rules had to, to advertise to tender and the contract went elsewhere. Mm. Um, interestingly to British Gas, a, a privately owned energy company, um, the contract was later re-secured but it's, it caused a bit of a, a spiral. Now, I see. there's several lessons about this spiral of kind of like lost revenues and therefore decline and being broken up and sold in, in quite a short space of time. Mm. Now, the first is that there are incredibly positive elements and benefits linked to Bristol Energy. So, for example, it piloted a really innovative model um, offering a flat rate tariff 
based on the temperature of the mm. home. So it wasn't just about supply, it was about warmth. And that's oh, something wow. we write about, and you know, I write about in the book a lot, and it's mm. kind of like, it's about, we need a, a, some kind of right to warmth. It's mm. not just about temperature, or you know, you're lucky and your lights being on. Mm. It's about comfort and security and warmth, particularly in the winter months. Mm-hmm. So it didn't build necessarily by kind of unit of electricity sold. It was based on kind of the outcome of that energy use. Right. But it also shows something which is really important for any future endeavours by local authorities to set up an energy company. Um, and that was because it was um, it was originally going to be both an energy services company and an energy supplier. So an energy supplier sells energy onto its residents. An energy services company kind of provides support for retrofitting and energy savings and energy efficiency. So when it was first floated, it was going to be both. Mm-hmm. When it was formed, it was only an energy supply company. And no one's really sure why that happened and I don't I don't speculate and I don't want to speculate on why sure. but what that means was its business model was predicated on being a disruptive entrant into a market which is dominated by big companies who can absorb losses mm-hmm. so all that happened was the big energy companies lowered their prices in an attempt to undercut Bristol Energy like they do with other energy companies sure, yeah. people are thinking of their wallets they go elsewhere mm-hmm. so there was a strong sense of regional identity and urban identity and, and being Bristolian, and that helped. Mm. But when push came to shove and the pound signs came up, people did move elsewhere. Mm. So there's this really innovative model, which is totally worthy of praise. But the Bristol Energy kind of saga and episode is a cautionary tale of how the, the energy model that we have can just strike down that kind of disruption, that innovation, yeah. if it deems it a threat or if it deems it something which um, is just um, a bit of a pest in terms of kind of profit margins and revenues and so on. Mm. You know, mm. prices can be lowered much more by a company which is big and it can absorb losses than a company which is locally owned mm. and based on kind of supporting the community. Right, yeah. And for you were saying about people uh, thinking of their wallets too, it's not uh, it's not it's not always going to be enough that um, we are a Bristol energy supplier, Bristol loyalty, yeah. uh, be you know, support your local community, and the local community will support you. It's not enough sometimes because um, uh, so many people are struggling. They like uh, as in like um, you, know, you you need you need to have the, that foundational support before you can think of anything anything more uh, anything anything higher up than that. Yeah, like one of the most basic human securities is warmth and mm. being dry and comfortable. Mm. Uh, and people, you know, we are, we have been brought up as, as adults in kind of in these energy markets to switch as much as we can, sure. to shop around. And, and we can. And actually, when you compare that to the water sector, that's a good thing. But at the same time, when the pool that you can choose from is limited, then that can cause problems as well. Because it just creates, you know, we have... Yeah, we have the big six has always been the kind of rhetoric around energy companies and um, but they absorb each other as well and we witness companies that look like they could kind of enter that market mm. um, exposed as having quite difficult or problematic business models and therefore falling apart bulb's mm. a big example because all like, lots of people joined bulb because it had um claims of being 100% renewable energy but also had a very kind of strong brand identity and efforts to encourage people to recommend it to their friends. Yes. The company went bust, and it cost an absolute ton of money <laughs> to kind of support that bankruptcy and to support the customers moving elsewhere. Mm. So there, 
yeah, every time I guess we see something kind of rise up, there's something exposed in terms of the market dynamics around it, which mm. which make it more problematic. And people do care about prices. People do care about their energy bills, particularly in 2023. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, the bulb. The bulb example. Um, I remember when those when when the I'd hear um, adverts for bulb on almost every podcast I was listening to back in you know only only a couple of years ago maybe. Uh, and my neighbors were bulb, uh, you know, switched to bulb. But there's so many people were were bulb uh, converts. Um, I was really surprised when uh, when when they suddenly uh, yeah poofed away. And um, but reading your book, I, it makes so much more sense <laughs> now that yeah they 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 they, uh, they were I mean they went into a market where they had you know so little chance of surviving. Yeah, and, and yeah, and they had money behind them. Like okay. they were like they were they were quite they were a strong market entrant. Right. Um, and and I think a lot of the time is that there's a brand around it. I think they were seen as one of the most the fastest growing companies in the financial times mm. um and then and in the same year they went bust <laughs> um so i guess it's you know with bulb and it's, it's there's more cautionary tales of energy companies right in the uk in particular particularly over the past three years or so mm. but there are there's examples of certain companies being built on sand mm. um mm. and that's all well and good for those shareholders who extract the dividends at a quick rate and are happy. Sure. Yeah. But when a customer's cut adrift, it can be hugely traumatic for them in terms of how their bills suddenly jump up. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in your book as well, you, you use a quote from Gary Smith of the GMB Union. Uh, Gary Smith says, The big winners from renewables have been the wealthy and big corporate interests. Invariably, the only jobs that are created when wind farms get put up, particularly onshore wind farms, have been jobs in public relations and jobs for lawyers. Uh, great quote, by the way. Uh, where where does the where does work come into this in a in a just energy transition? Any energy transition is underpinned by work. Like labour always has a role. Okay, mm. and and that's in two ways. So the first is that the fossil fuel industry has traditionally been a centre for workers, a centre for that for for labour labour to be to be clustered in certain communities. Um, and we see that in terms of kind of the oil refinery work, but also go back uh, you know, 30, 40 years in this country in the closure of the coal mines. And there are coal mines closing across the world today, going through mm. similar processes as well. Now, fossil fuel companies and fossil fuel economies grew at such a rate initially that they built whole towns and villages to house the workers around coal mines and right. oil fields and so on. So what that meant was that people got identity from work. Mm. People got social bonds from work. It happened to be extracting carbon from the from the ground. It happened to be kind of uh, working in power stations. But they had a sense of community and identity that came from that. Mm. A closure of a fossil fuel facility disrupts that. It tears apart the social bonds. And it stops people seeing an identity in what they do and mm-hmm. how they toil and what their work is mm-hmm. as a key part of the, their, themselves. Mm-hmm. So we've got you know, numerous cases of this exact thing happening again and again and again. Um, also worth saying that um, in many countries, particularly in the UK and the US, um, fossil fuel work has been an historically a site of high trade union kind of participation. And that's due to that sense of shared identity as well. So any energy transition needs to take all of that into account because what we're doing is, is we're saying, okay, in the name of global climate action, in the name of reducing emissions, in the name of stopping climate breakdown, we are going to keep it in the ground and you are not going to have a job. Mm. So we need to think about what we do and what these people do and how they, like, what's their future? Because 
people working in North Sea oil and gas aren't old. They're, they're you know, they, mm-hmm. they have decades left of work. Sure. So how do we transition them from that line of work to another? And we need to have that discussion and that thought process before. We need to have it, we need to be having it now. Mm-hmm. And the second role of, of labour and jobs and work in a, in, in a just transition and an energy transition is what a green job is. Now, green jobs are a key part of any narrative of current kind of climate action, okay? Like, I think in uh, 2020, and when he was in the White House, uh, Joe Biden was said, oh, it's climate day in, in the White House today, which means it's jobs day for me. So there's a strong narrative of kind of job creation and the environment and the climate right. being being entwined. Right. And that's around new jobs are in installing solar panels mm. or energy efficiency measures or just even green jobs which can be linked to supporting the green economy. So, you know, this quote from Gary Smith highlights a lot of professional, what we would see traditionally as white collar roles as well. So yep. there's huge, huge um, terrain of, of green jobs. Mm. So what is a green job mm-hmm. and how good is it? And what does it give someone and what training is needed and what skills do people need? And how do you get those skills? Mm. Where's the pipeline mm. from someone to leave school and go and become a, a wind turbine technician? Mm. So these two things are, are heavily joined together. And and the book dwells on, on what's um, labelled a just transition. So this stems from the trade union's in the 1970s, 1980s, saying, if you're going to change our work, you need to give us better work. Right. And it goes back to what we said at the beginning of this kind of discussion when we were like, you know, what, what comes next needs to be better than what we've got now. Right, right. And, and jobs and work are a key part of that. Mm. Um, with, the, with the types of jobs that are coming up um, or, or will be coming up, uh, uh, the example uh, just grabbing from what you said was a wind turbine engineer, for example, uh, how how can um, people in I suppose I'm thinking like um, uh, people people growing up in working class communities going into uh, um, trade jobs people going into trade jobs from my from my experience um, watching my family and, and and things I suppose just how how are how are these how are they going to get into these new jobs um, I suppose I'm wondering like will there be support for them uh, is that is that being talked about. Yeah, that's a super, like, it's a really good question, like, because it is a concern that lots of communities have. And as we go, say, we go back to, you know, previous patterns of transition have left people behind. So what happens now with this mm. one? Um, the Green Jobs Task Force, which is a, a UK kind of uh, mandate, UK government mandated group of people working in the energy sector and further education, higher education, released a report a few years ago, which called for a green skills pipeline. And this is where we need action now this mm. is where we need government uh, direct government intervention because we have an education system which is actually going to really good to kind of take young people in and give them the skills they need for their future livelihoods mm. and green skills are a big part of that so we can see for example in the green jobs task force recommendations of a scaling up of apprenticeship schemes so giving people an early chance to get into these sectors mm-hmm. and start learning the skills whilst on the job. Nice. Okay, and that can be solar panel installer, which we've seen a boom in demand for rooftop solar in the in the UK mm-hmm. in the past few years. They're at capacity as a sector. They need more people. You know, it could be um, roles when 
colleges and further education colleges in particular team up with renewable energy companies to kind of create bespoke courses which allow people to kind of leave school join the course go through it do work experience with say the big wind, wind turbine manufacturer Vestas or Orsted who, manuf- um, who build the infrastructure offshore mm. and kind of they go into that job so it's about a pipeline it's about ensuring that as with everything, when you leave school, when you leave university, you can kind of see what an option is, but where that option will take you. And right now, we don't have a long-term vision of what a green job is. Right now, the green jobs that we have primarily are quick and short-term and sudden. And it's based around installing something quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll get the solar panels in the field. Yeah, we'll get the wind turbine offshore. What happens when they're built isn't that people lose jobs. They don't become redundant. Their contracts end. Mm. Then what? What happens after that? Is there a skills transferability or is there a way to ensure more secure jobs in the future as well? So it's about that pipeline and and there are calls for that to happen and there are lots of great cases across the UK and across the US and across France and Spain and Europe. And this isn't just a thinking about the UK, it's where we are sat, but it's it's there's cases everywhere mm-hmm. of colleges and universities and local authorities working with companies and energy suppliers and the government and so on to create a vision of what can come next and green skills are a huge part of that particularly for in working class communities where they're not necessarily in the the big roles that gary smith talks about aren't necessarily in reach Mm -hmm. yeah thanks ed one of the resources we're going to need a lot of during this transition is lithium um, before reading your book, I, I'd heard of it being found in Chile and, and also in Bolivia. Uh, but you've, you talk about it being detected in places like Cornwall, too. Um, didn't realise it was so close to home. There's, there's, going, to be, there's going to be a global hunt for, for lithium, uh, copper and other resources, too. And, and you make, in the book, you make comparisons here to imperialism. Uh, how, are, how are governments and businesses ensuring that this hunt doesn't become another colonialism? Yeah, so... Lithium is this kind of like silvery white metal that we use to manufacture kind of the batteries that store electricity, store electricity, sorry. Um, But also these could be smaller kind of batteries, but also larger batteries and transmission grids, which are an emergent technology. Um, We also use lithium to kind of layer it with silicon semiconductors to create solar panels. So Mm. this is a key material in anything that we do and mm. and as with key materials is that there's always a hunt for where they are mm-hmm. and you're right like the need for lithium is expanding um i think that to meet the paris agreement goals demand is going to increase by maybe as much as 90 percent globally mm, wow. this is like this is the new material this is this is where we're at in terms mm. of um what governments want what they're looking for now, that means there is a turn outwards, you know, and looking for materials elsewhere and how they can access materials and how they can be brought into a country to enable their transition. But it's also a turn inwards. And a turn inwards is based on a lot of different events. OK, so uh, the first one is kind of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine in, in February last year. Mm. That coincided with a huge uh, spike in the price of nickel. Nickel is also important mm. for energy transitions. Um, it's used in a lot of the technologies that we use. Um, and that is because Russia holds a vast proportion of the global reserves of that material. So right. everyone's very quickly like, oh, okay, conflict is happening. If long and protracted, violent, kind of, it's going to affect access to resources. And that's um, a really 
important motivation for, for countries to kind of change policy and to think about how they can act and enact that change and transformation. Right. And that's kind of where we get to these links about imperialism. And it's not just me, like it's, you know, if we find governments and communities across the global south, particularly South America, where the Lithium Triangle is, it's a, it, you found across the salt flats of Chile, mm. Bolivia and Argentina. Um, and that is purely because of this being a global demand for materials, a global demand for climate action with very localised consequences, which exist along the lines of historic colonialism and imperialism. So the salt flats um, in, in kind of Bolivia, they're not that far away from places like uh, Potosi, which is you know, where silver mm. was mined by the Spanish colonists. So there's a historical memory and it's very up to date. And also the role and the presence of kind of multinational companies coming in, being from the US, being from China, there is that ties in a lot with this memory. And as a result, there are kind of claims and, and often justified claims that the material is being taken, it is being extracted from a landscape with impacts for those who live on that landscape, mm. and it is being exported elsewhere in the name of global climate action. There is a cost shifting there. The impacts of emissions reductions are felt by the communities of the salt flats in those regions. Mm. The benefits are felt by you and I of our kind of like solar panels on the roof of a building nearby, you know? There's an issue there. That claim of, of imperialism and concern has led to several countries seeking to secure their own reserves in, within their country. So, for example, um, in Mexico last year, the House of Deputies voted to nationalise its lithium resources. Um, the same year, Indonesian government officials floated the idea of creating kind of a mechanism which is similar to OPEC, which is an organisation of petroleum exporting countries. Mm. They wanted to create a similar organisation for those with nickel, uh, nickel, cobalt and manganese reserves. So mm. once again, all kind of resources. So this is kind of like an emergent thing when there are concerns about what this means. There are grievances about current events and processes. Mm. And there are actions by countries seeking to say no, it's ours, we control it, we have authority over it, and we use it for what we want to use it for. Right, right. Within that context, countries in the global north have turned inwards. So the UK, yeah, they, they, there are expected to be some lithium reserves in Cornwall. How much? We don't necessarily know at the moment. Mm. In, in the EU, in the European Union, there's parts of Portugal which are expected to be key sites of providing lithium in the, in the continent. Mm. In the US, it's kind of places, uh, it's, it's places like Texas, I believe, and stuff like this. So it's kind of like there are Nevada. So mm. there are all these places where we're like, okay, these landscapes, they can be where we get our lithium from. Yep. Bear in mind, though, that both Cornwall and parts of Nevada are peripheralized areas already within mm. those countries. So the cost shifting continues. But there is this process in which we see. Um, the global, the national, the local, the community, all kind of having tensions across the board. And governments, a lot of the time, are scrambling to figure out what to do next. Right, yeah. Uh, I feel very lucky to be able to say I've been to the salt flats in, in Chile slash Bolivia. Uh, well, yeah, and, um, um, and they're absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and, you know, very a very popular tourism spot. And I was yeah. just, while reading, I was just like, oh, yeah. There's, there's the salt flats tourism, Cornwall tourism. You were saying they're also an energy periphery as well already. Um, but I guess I was just wondering about, like, is there, um, there going to be a... 
kind of a struggle, I suppose, between uses for those areas. That, you know, it's such a massive, both, both of those examples, massive tourism areas, yeah. uh, places that we need to, to keep pristine to a, to a certain extent, but also in order to, 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 to make this huge energy transition, we need to, um, we need to dig up lithium, as yeah. I understand it. This, yeah. There's, there's always tensions between kind of extraction of resources mm. for a, a transi- transition or any, any energy resources and what industry is already there. Mm. And um, what's, what's interesting in parts of the lithium triangle, in particularly in, in Chile, I think, is that um, there was a lot of promise for new jobs for the locals, for mm. the residents. They didn't come. There, there's very much people coming into that area and working there. So what's happening is that's disrupting what is... Yeah, it was primarily quite a lot of aquaculture in certain parts because it's lowering the water table, it's contaminating water and people moving away. The Cornwall example is really interesting as well because um, of two things. One is that to detect lithium or to try to detect lithium, the two companies currently working there are using the old boreholes and old um, networks from mines when they were used to kind of mine tin and oh, stuff wow. like this. So it's this kind of like parallel of the past industry. Mm. But also, you're right, it, like Cornwall's properly um a, a tourist location of a, a heavily uh, an economy heavily reliant on tourism but also a region which is resisting that change as well mm. so there's um, a lot of examples i guess of these kind of regions which are already peripheralized and now seeing that something else come in when they are already trying to push back against what came in last time and and i guess cornwall's quite a good example of that i don't know if there'll be a tension between the two I've, yeah i've been around kind of the parts of cornwall where these mines are these explorations are taking place. They're still quite heavily industrialised landscapes. Okay. People go to Cornwall, they still go around the coast. They don't go inland mm-hmm. that much. Right, they cut it. across, I don't know. But um, it's, they're still quite heavily industrialised landscapes, bearing the scars of previous mining. Right. Um, but there's always going to be a tension between what's there now in any region, any community, and what might come next. Mm-hmm. And communities push back and communities deserve a voice in pushing back, but also in de- de- defining and dictating the terms of the change as well. Mm, mm-hmm. As in, yeah, the, the the local community themselves deserve a voice in this change. Yeah, and I guess mm. with Cornwall, there's a big discussion about who the local community is now because of the, the right. wider patterns of gentrification, touristification mm. taking place in those spaces. True. So many holiday homes there now. Who defines it? Mm. Who yeah, defines that what voice Slim define it? He has a holiday home there. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. There you go. You learned something new. <laughs> My final question for you, uh, Ed, it's been so great to talk to you today. Um, three, three words that really jump out in your book are fair, equitable and just. Uh, how can keeping those words in mind during our energy transition create a better future? Yeah, so the book's called The Just Energy Transition and justice is at its core. And the book seeks to kind of put forward a series of forms of justice which need to be taken into account, okay? Um, Going from kind of thinking about who has a say in making decisions, like we just said, to where the benefits and costs are located, to thinking about how we can use energy efficiency models and and, uh, processes and technologies to make people's lives better. Mm. And this is kind of like where, I guess, the book goes and where what the core narrative is, is 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 you're right is that i believe that any transition we have in terms of decarbonization should just be based around emissions reductions if it is it is a wasted opportunity mm. we need to use any policy any move any technology any transition to make people's lives better 
And it not doing so just risks perpetuating the kind of exclusions and the injustices and the peripheralizations and the marginalizations and the unfairness of the past. We're at a point where we can change things. And I, it's, I guess as I was writing this book, I was really struck by how every single time I was reading something new or going to a new location or finding out about a new energy project, there would be some example of something going wrong for someone somewhere. Mm, mm. Now, what we can do in the Just Energy Transition is think about what we're telling people about it. The Gary Smith quote you gave earlier mm. um, from the trade union GMB, which has yeah, 460,000 members. They're not a small group. They're not mm-hmm. a niche group. Um, it's symbolic of a wider backlash against renewable energy which is kind of emerging at the moment and it's part of where a lot of my other work kind of away from this book is Mm. is based at Mm. the moment because there are numerous kind of right-wing populists saying that we can't afford it or um, people are caring about their energy bills they don't care about emissions Mm. or people are struggling to make ends meet we can't ask them for more it costs too much it's undemocratic it's unfair Mm. and people are going to lose out now i contest every single one of those claims but they are powerful in an era of an energy price crisis in an era of people are having to make decisions between eating uh, eating and heating Mm. when you know and, and you know, the, the examples we have the past year are, are shocking. So people are going to hear these messages and think, I agree with that. What I want to do and what this book sets out to do is put forward that new message, that alternative message that, yes, we have to make change. Mm. Yes, it will be rapid. Yes, it will be transformative. Every element of our everyday lives will change but it can change for the better too. Mm. An energy transition can give us warm homes. It can insulate them. It can make them more energy efficient. It can make our bills cheaper. Mm. An energy transition can create new jobs which are secure, highly skilled, highly paid, and actually just see allow people to see their livelihoods going off into the future and retirement and so on. You know, it can do so many things. We're not taking advantage of that at the moment. Mm. And I just think the opportunities are... The opportunities are endless, and the fact they're not kind of being pursued, you know, at a fast rate is, you know, disappointing. But one of the key things is is that people need to see themselves in any change as well, mm. and that's about ensuring participation. It's about ensuring that people are aware of what's going on around them. But it's also about going back to the example we had of Lawrence Weston at the beginning of the chat. Right. Is that communities are able to say, "Well, we want to do it, so we're going to." Mm. They worked so hard. So much money was spent by um, investors and kind of local authorities and groups around that kind of wind turbine. They shouldn't have to work that hard because mm-hmm. what they were doing was good for the planet, good for the energy grid, and good for the community. Yeah. So it's about thinking about how can we make the energy model we have more inclusive and allowing of decisions like that and schemes like that, but also to give people those kind of like better lives and better jobs and better homes and better futures. Mm. It's... Um, yeah, so justice is at the core, and I think justice should be at the core of everything that we do around this. Climate action is 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 incredible, but there's a quote somewhere which is, you know, whilst we're worrying about the end of the world, people are worried about making it to the end of the week. We right. need to listen to that. We need to pay attention to that. That is our context. And the just energy transition pays attention to context. 
I love that. Thank you so much, Ed. I think that's a perfect uh, line to end on. If that's all right with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming today. Uh, in a moment, I'll let everybody know where they can find your book. Um, but first, I was wondering, um, uh, did you have anything else you'd like to plug while we're here? Um, and also, where can we find you online? Um, so my Twitter handle is at Ed Atkins underscore. And there's an artist called Ed Atkins as well. So follow follow him. Um <laughs> And then the, yeah, the book comes out and then from there you'll see where the work goes. But yeah, pick up the book if you get a chance and always feel free to email me and reach out if you have any questions or want to have a chat about these topics. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Ed. A Just Energy Transition, Getting Decarbonisation Right in a Time of Crisis by Ed Atkins is published by Bristol University Press. You can find out more about the book by visiting bristoluniversitypress.co.uk and also transformingsociety.co.uk.